1: For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today.
2: Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, we're live at the Bell House in Brooklyn. And on it, you'll hear Julie Houston.
3: Anorexia is a
2: terrible disease. And if you
3: go too far, you will die. But if you don't
2: die... That and more. And our next Bell House dates in Brooklyn are on February 24th and March 23rd. Now, remember to tell your friends we're taking pitches right now for our Chicago show on March 10th. The theme is ecstatic. You can pitch us your stories by February 11th if you just go to the submissions page at risk-show.com. And then there's D.C. We're in D.C. on March 26th. The theme is powerless. Pitch us your stories for that by February 22nd. Again, that's at the submissions page at risk-show.com. Now, we're going to play our first Brooklyn Bell House show for you uninterrupted here. But before that, I just want to say Valentine's Day is coming up. You can make this Valentine's Day one you'll both never forget with this amazing offer from adamandeve.com. You'll receive 50% off just about any item. You go to adamandeve.com, you'll find over 18,000 adult entertainment products, toys, lingerie, endless DVDs, and there's more. Every order, you get a romance kit free for Valentine's Day. That's a toy for him, a massager for her, little something you'll both enjoy, plus a free adult DVD to put you in the mood. And there's free shipping on the entire order. So check out adamandeve.com today for this special Valentine's offer, 50% off one item, free romance kit, and free shipping when you enter the offer code R-I-S-K. That's the offer code RISK at adamandeve.com and finally, you know that feeling you get when you get things done with a click of the button it can't get more convenient and now you can get your mailing and shipping done without leaving your desk thanks to stamps.com stamps.com turns your PC or Mac into your own personal post office that never closes you can buy and print official US postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer then just hand your mail to the mailman or drop it in the mailbox you'll never have to go Go to the post office again we use stamps.com at risk and the story studio and we love it and right now you can sign up for stamps.com and use our promo code r-i-s-k for this special offer it's a four week trial plus a hundred and ten dollar bonus offer that includes postage and a digital scale so don't wait Go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. And now the first Risk live show from our new residency at the Bell House in Brooklyn. We're back there on February 24th. This is completely uninterrupted. There's only one part we took out. I told a 15-minute story, and we took that out, so this would be a more reasonably sized episode. We'll put that on later. Here it is, Risk live in 2016 at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Whoa! It's so great to be here. Holy shit! Oh my god. I I have to say, I I have been nervous today. It's just such a. a, It's just so exciting to be at the Bell House because I fucking love this place. Thank you all so much for coming out tonight. How many people here are familiar with the podcast? If you, if you don't know, if someone drugged you here, <laughs> drugged you and then drugged you here, uh, Risk is the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share in public. So, it's stories you would not hear on NPR. Uh, The stories might be uh, traumatic, they might be hilarious, they might be sad or beautiful, they go all over the place, and nothing is off limits. Um, But the reason I'm so emotional tonight is because, you know, we started Risk in 2009, and when we started it, Michelle Walson and I started it at Arlene's Grocery, in the Lower East Side, which is this little hole-in-the-wall sort of punk rock dive bar. Very small, and when we did it there, it was so funny because they were not, no one was used to anything but little indie rock outfits performing there. So I come out on stage and I start talking about, well, you know, there was the time that that guy forced me to tie my shoes to my balls. (laughs) And when I was 18, the first thing I did when I arrived in New York City was, I've got to go into Central Park at 4 o'clock in the morning for anonymous gay sex. And and all these punk rockers are standing around Arlene's grossly like, what the fuck? The fuck is this show? So it's very exciting. Things have changed. The podcast gets well over a million downloads a month. And... And I remember also when we started doing the podcast, I I used mattresses. I had a couple of mattresses that I set up in a corner standing straight up in my apartment to, like, hide all the noise of Bushwick, Brooklyn. And now things have changed so much because, you know, I live in, in Harlem, and I just don't give a fuck anymore. There's, like... The four neighbors that I have on my floor are blasting salsa and merengue so loud all day long that I'm like, you know what, no mattress. So we've grown that way, too. There are some ways we just don't give a fuck. Um, I want to uh, talk tonight, like, first of all, I will start by sharing a new story my story is going to be about some odd jobs that I did before I took on this one, but also uh, I've gotten in the habit in the past few months of reading these stories that come from another odd job I had in the '90s, which for a brief time I was a gay porn uh, writer for for a, a, a magazine called uh, Play Guy. And I had kind of forgotten about this, and then someone kind of started posting these gay porn stories on the internet, and I'm like, oh! So I I started sharing those at the show, but there's only a limited amount of them, so I've run out. But then last week, I was in San Francisco, and I, I did erotic fan fiction. And uh, they forced me within, like, 20 minutes to write a new porn. So I was like, oh, my God, the fans of Risk are always insisting I come out with new porn stories. So I've got, I've got another one if you want to hear it. It'll, I, I think it kind of sets the tone for a show where you can say anything. Now, erotic fan fiction, I don't know if you know how that show works, but basically the audience yells out something from popular culture, and you've got to write the story around that character. I got The Little Prince. This is super timely. They're making a, uh, like a live action Little Prince movie now, so it's, it's really uh, touching that I got the chance to do this. It's a pretty short story. I figure I'll, I'll read it for you. Um, Once upon a time, there was a little prince. I stole that part, that, uh... (laughs) He was from Asteroid 325. One day, a mysterious little red rose grew up on the prince's asteroid. Hello, said the flower. Hello, said the little prince. Then the little prince had an idea. Little rose, he said. Would you like to engage in some consensual, hardcore scat play? (laughs) That's the part where I started writing the story. (laughs) Would I, said the flower? Why, I'd like nothing more. After all, dear reader, fecal matter is wonderful for helping flowers grow. So the prince, who had recently reached his 18th birthday and was extremely legal, peeled off his trousers, squatted over the rose and grunted and grunted. But nothing came out. He just kept grunting and grunting, but not so much as a raisin escaped his anal lips. "'What the fuck is wrong with you?' said the flower. (laughs) "'Well, excuse me,' said the prince. "'Maybe I'm not the best scat top in the universe "'because do you see any fiber on this planet?' (laughs) They were both very frustrated. So they opted for regular old missionary-style fucking, and it was awful.'" (laughs) The next morning, a miracle occurred. The asteroid had begun to grow other things. Specifically, prunes, and bran cereals, and coffee, and Metamucil. And the little prince and his little rose lived happily ever after. guys we have such a wonderful group of storytellers tonight we have Broadway's Julie Halston from uh, the the Fallon show we have my good friend 80 miles and the brilliant Kurt Braunahler is here we have a wonderful wonderful show But first, I want to bring up to the stage, she is the host of Radio Picture Show out in Los Angeles, a new storytelling show out there. So if you're out there or you have friends out there, let them know to get to Radio Picture Show. She also does a podcast with her husband, Kurt Uh It's called Wedlock Podcast. Please welcome to the stage, Lauren Cook! (laughs) Hello, Bell
4: House! I am so excited to be here, and I'm so nervous to tell you this story. Um, Okay. I'm standing in a CVS aisle reading the back of a fleet enema box when my grandfather calls. I don't want to be standing in the enema aisle. I've never used an enema before. The thought of it is mildly terrifying, but I was just recently diagnosed with chronic Lyme disease and urgent constipation is one of the 27 ways that my body is currently breaking down, not only from the Lyme disease, but also from the treatment of the Lyme disease. It's a real bummer. I need to fix this right away, and the reason I need to fix it right away is that I'm scheduled to take a cross-country road trip tomorrow morning. And it's not a normal road trip. My husband, Kevin mentioned, is comedian Kurt Brownoler, and in an effort to insert absurdity into strangers' lives in order to make the world a better place, he's gonna drive a giant butt across the country. <laughs> Uh, This butt is 15 feet long, it's 1,400 pounds. It's made of plaster and foam and metal and I'm supposed to ride it, or the flatbed truck that's carrying it rather. It's so big that it can't go faster than 65 miles an hour which means there's not a lot of time for bathroom breaks. Uh, So in case you missed that, my situation is that I have to fix my butt in order to ride the butt. Or hashtag the love butt, as we called it. And the irony of the situation has not been lost on me. But I am so uncomfortable. I'm not finding anything funny about anything. Kurt suggested I stay home. uh, Or at least get my shit together, no pun intended. um, And then fly out and meet him in Denver. And that would make sense. Because when you're really sick, you stay home. But I... I feel sick all the time, Um, I went undiagnosed, and to really simplify my symptoms, I felt like shit for eight years without being diagnosed, and so I've missed out on a lot of fun things, and not going on this trip, the whole entire trip that I've been looking forward to, that sort of feels like letting the sickness win. So that's why I'm here. (laughs) Urgently looking at pictures on the back of this enema box, wondering if my marriage can withstand my husband pumping a hot hot water bottle into my ass (laughs) while I lay in one of two positions. These positions are called the grundle and the matterhorn. You can Google that. That's a fact, that's a true thing. And this is the moment that my grandfather calls. I answer because my grandfather never calls. But the call immediately drops, and before I can call him back, my mom calls. And now I'm certain something awful has happened. And so I pick up the phone, but instead she says, Hi, Lore. I had an adventure yesterday. She doesn't sound exactly like Fargo, but I'm gonna do her voice that way because it makes me happy. (laughs) I found a new coffee shop while they were changing the oil in my car, And do you know, for the first time in my life, I spent $5 on a cup of coffee? Do you know? They brew each cup individually. I mean, holy crap! Holy crap! They made me one of the best cups of decaf I ever had. So what you need to know about my mom is that she's very liberal politically. But she lives her life so conservatively. She loves rules, and she loves diets, and she loves saving money, and she doesn't, she's not married, she doesn't date, and her dog just died. So I worry about her having fun. Uh, But she knows I worry about her having fun, and so she likes to call and report anytime she has fun. Here in the enema aisle, I'm not in the best place for the report, but she goes on to explain that um, after the coffee, later that night, she went to her book club, and they were watching a Blackhawk game, and it was just so late, she had to leave at halftime, but it was taking her a long time to get home on the train, and she was worried she was going to miss the end of the game. And so she said, I walked past that bar, you know, Kincaid's right on Armitage, and I thought they'd have the game on. And then I said to myself, do I dare? <laughs> and I went in, and I watched the game.
5: Said,
4: oh, that's great. That's great, Mom. Is that the whole story? No. No. I met the bouncer, and I made friends with the bartender, and I had a Stella. We just had a ball. Laura. you would have been so proud of me. I never do that sort of thing. And so I told her I was proud of her, and then I hung up. Because I ha- I am in again, back in this enema aisle, uh, an emergency situation. Like the best way to describe it is that I need to shit out this music stand. <laughs> like it's this wide and it's this long and it's this rigid and it's ready to break through. And so I'm rushing to, the ch- I'm finally at the checkout line and I look down and my grandfather's calling again. <laughs> what you need to know about my grandparents. My grandfather is 93. My grandmother is 91. They have been married for 72 years. 72. Give it up. Thank you. They are by far the most romantic example of a marriage that I've ever had the pleasure of witnessing. As I was growing up, uh, we would always listen to the Sleepless in Seattle soundtrack. I don't know if you guys remember that, but it was all these big bands, all this old, and my grandfather would ham it up and he would swing my grandmother around singing that song. It's so important to make someone happy. Make just one, someone, I don't, I'm a horrible singer, but it was beautiful. (laughs) And So obviously I pick up the phone, you know, even in my condition, but, again, the service is bad, because the enema aisle, it turns out, is really deep in the CVS. <laughs> but dum um, And I start running madly, like, to the front of the store. And because what you need to know about my grandfather is he is sunshine in a room, he is contagious joy, but lately he's been really having a tough time, because my grandmother has dementia... And just recently, she walked into the room and he didn't, I'm sorry, he walked into the room and she didn't know who he was. And worse than that, which is really, this is very common with uh, dementia and Alzheimer's, she takes all of her frustration and all of her anger out on the one person who wants nothing more than to take care of her, which is my grandfather, And just recently, the doctors have uh, decided that her mental state is such that she needs to be moved into something called the memory ward. Um, So they live in in a wonderful home. They're very lucky to have the care that they can afford. But this meant that even though they could see each other, they would be in the same building. They would no longer live together. And so my whole family knew that this transition that was happening today was, was a really big deal. And so the fact that he is calling me today, I have to answer this call. And this is how I became a person who sat outside of CVS having a long conversation with a grandfather with a stolen enema in her lap. We chatted for a long time. Eventually, my grandfather kind of explained the heart of the problem. He said that uh, when my grandmother falls asleep, that's the only time that she, that she acts like her old self. Uh, her anger softens, and she curls up next to him and cuddles in the whole night long. And he explained that he didn't want to say goodbye to that because it was all he had left. And we kept talking, we had, a, we had a really lovely conversation, but when I got off the phone I felt, on several levels, that life is beautiful and awful at the same time. And I also felt, for reasons that I can't fully explain, that my whole life depended on driving home and inserting this enema so that I could be well enough to ride the love butt across the country. And uh, that's what I did, I went home and I went into battle. Um, <laughs> like David with his little sling up against Goliath. It was me and that enema up against the wall of shit that was trying to kill me. My husband would knock on the door occasionally and I would just scream out, Don't come in! I feel like I'm in labor. I am like legit Lamaze breathing. Hours and hours are passing. The enema is not fucking working. It's the middle of the night, I'm pacing the perimeter of my apartment and it suddenly hits me that I can't go on this trip, like I can't get in a vehicle. What if this happens again tomorrow? And in this, in a last ditch effort, I one more time googled severe constipation. Based on what I found, I chugged a glass of water with flaxseed and 20 minutes later, I won the war. (laughs) I pooped. (laughs) And the next morning, I climbed on the love butt, and uh, I had my pathetic lunch box with all of my supplements and medicines. But I got to take part in this, one of the most incredible trips that I ever could have imagined. It, there, I got to travel around with this huge piece of art that stopped everyone in their tracks and made them happy. I mean, everybody, like rich, poor, old, young, black, white, Asian, every ethnicity, it, they would you would see them, they would just be like having a boring time watering their plants, and then they would look up and they would be like, "Is, it... Is that a butt?" <laughs> and they would start to laugh. <laughs> and that became like a really beautiful, important thing to witness because people's lives are hard, you know. And since writing this story last summer, um I drove across the country again, actually this time with my dog, my husband and I are living out on the East Coast for a little while to help my mother-in-law fight cancer. And on the way out here, um, my grandmother had a massive stroke. And on Thanksgiving Day, I kissed her goodbye, and I watched my grandfather sing to her for the last time. And as trying as this last year has been, I have to tell you that watching them together in those final moments working to make each other happy. It was very beautiful. Thank you.
2: Lauren Cook! That was awesome. I have such different associations now with this music stand. I was thinking in the middle of the story that when Lauren was having trouble with her little enema there, there's a certain little prince (laughs) who might have been able to help out. No. Our next storyteller is a Broadway legend. She has been in so many amazing shows and is such a wonderful actress. Now, what I lived, the first apartment I ever had in the early 90s, yeah, somewhere around 1990, I lived on West 12th Street, where West 12th and West 4th Street meet up. And our next-door neighbor, myself and these two other gay boys, was Charles Bush, the amazing playwright of of plays like Vampire Lesbians of Sodom, stuff like that. Uh, And, you know, Charles is just like this incredible talent, this amazing actress himself. Um, uh, And we had our laundry on, on a line strung across the way to the apartment next door. And at one point, Charles wrote in this beautiful script and left the note taped to our door. It was very much like the note that, you know, someone like uh, uh, Betty Davis might leave for someone in a movie. And it was like, dear boys, you know, my parents came such a very long way to get to Ellis Island and oh, how it pains me to see that you're treating our fire escape like a third-world country. <laughs> and we were like, oh, my God, we've offended the aesthetics of Charles Bush. And when I told Julie Halston this story, she was like, holy fuck, I was in his apartment with him the day he was writing you guys that letter. <laughs> So she's done many, many a wonderful uh, play with Charles. In fact, she's working on The Divine Sister with Charles Bush. Uh, It's going to be at the Bucks County Playhouse. And she's working uh, in the Richard Greenberg show, The Babylon Line, at Lincoln Center with Josh Radner soon. Please welcome to the stage, Julie Halston!
3: Hello there. Yes, it's true. I actually saw that line, and it was disgusting. So I've never, ever, ever told this story before. And it's true, of course, which is my tragedy. And you will you will think poorly of me. <laughs> after you hear it. I think poorly of myself, believe me, and I've been... In therapy, a long time.
5: <laughs>
3: this uh, story is called The Line. I call it The Line, as in crossing the. So let's talk about what a line is. What is a line? Definition of a line it's a mark connecting two points, something stretched between two things in mathematics. It's a geometric figure formed by a point, moving along in a fixed direction and a reverse direction. What the fuck am I talking about, right? So here's the thing. It's not a math lesson. This is about an emotional 20-year-old girl, me, who got her heart broken and didn't always understand boundaries.
5: (laughs) Yes it gets threatening
3: (laughs) as the 1980s expression goes and it was indeed 1980 let's go to the videotape although happily there is no videotape and thank god because bad behavior crazy behavior was often witnessed by very few people thank god or maybe no one at all I crossed that mark connecting two points in Brooklyn, not far from here, ladies and gentlemen, decades ago. So what was Brooklyn like decades ago? Well, there were no honey wagons lining the streets. There were no $7 cups of coffee. Rents were a lot cheaper than Manhattan. And there were, in fact, hints of gourmet ice cream that might catch on, but I was living in an Italian neighborhood, and, you know, we had gelato, so who cared about gourmet ice cream? I lived in Carroll Gardens, where English was a second language. And being half Sicilian, I was allowed in. But I was kept in check by the very protective and judgmental eye of all those ladies who sit on the stoop, the mothers and the grandmothers and the widows. And I used to, you know, hear about things from the neighborhood because the the, the candy store was a bookie joint. The candy was from 1954, no joke. And people disappeared, like all the time. I would see someone and then like a week later, they wouldn't be in the neighborhood. And one time I actually heard two women on my stoop say, uh, uh, Oh, Joe! Joe's no longer with us. <laughs> if you know what I mean. <laughs> and then they'd stare at me. <laughs> I'd back away. So I was a wannabe actress, <clears throat> trapped in a day job, and I, I had no connections, I had no elite schooling, I had no training. I was a loser, okay? Okay. I was a loser, but I had a lot of supreme optimism, which made me delusional. Which is really the best kind of loser. You know, if you're going to be a loser, you better be delusional. Because then you really don't know how bad off you are, okay? Um, You may be very seriously depressed or, you know, very off balance or in need of therapy or meds or a good internist even, but you don't know it. You're just kind of happy. See, all I I needed was to get back to the man who dumped me. I mean, we were soulmates, you know. (laughs) He was older, he was smarter, he was cute. You know, he wasn't handsome, but he was really sexy. You know those guys? They just gotta look, they just, and they know what they're doing. They know what they're doing. Because you know why? They're doing it with everybody. That's why they're so good. Because they're fucking the neighborhood. They better be good, because they're doing it all the time. No, 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 we were soulmates. We were meant to be together. We talked about it a lot. He adored me. He said it all the time. All right, yeah, he was attached, he had children, blah, 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 yeah, 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 fuck Kids. So the first thing you do when you want to get your man back is to stop eating. No, this is what you do. All right, let me talk, can I, no, it's called risk, I'm gonna risk, anorexia. Let's talk about it for a second. Little, little diversionary. Anorexia is a terrible disease and if you go too far, you will die. But if you don't die...
6: (laughs) You're very thin!
3: And it's fantastic! I hung out at that time with my best friend, Helen, who was gorgeous and funny and kind of crazy like me. She didn't eat either. And we thought that we were the coolest chicks in town, and God damn it, we were, all right? I mean, could there be anything greater than staying up all weekend, not eating, drinking tons of wine, smoking endless cigarettes, and just dishing and disparaging everything and everyone that came across our path, you know? I mean, we were the mean chick BFFs before that silly term was invented. We were the line to be crossed, but don't cross us. So being dumped, we realized, was not just a sin against me. Oh no, no. It was a global assault against every woman. Oh yeah, We would spend hours dissecting men and their nefarious motives and, you know, railing against their immaturity and their narcissism. And, and the world was horrible because of men. New York City was crime-ridden and, and, and bankrupt and, and dirty and disgusting because of men. Because women would never let it get that far, right? But then, like spellbound schoolgirls in a trance, we would go back. Back to our captors. At the first sign of apology. See, before texting and and emailing and audio files and all that, do you remember there was this mysterious instrument called the telephone? And there was no way to even know like who was on the other line? Do you remember those days? No, you don't! You're too young! Mysterious instrument of torture and delight, and, and you just never knew. And, and the voice that you waited for oh my god, sighing and, and sort of whispering and a very emotional. You know, I miss you, baby. Please, Can, can't we try again, baby? <laughs> Incantations. They were like magic mojos that had come so many times before. And, oh, I waited. and Oh, he's going to call. He's going to call. And I waited. And, oh, he's going to call next week. He's waiting an extra week. He's just waiting an extra week. He's going to call. He didn't call. I just, just, he's, he's waiting. to. He wants to torture me. He's tort- he didn't call. He didn't call it was no longer a charm it was a hex and i truly and finally was cut off so like a dime store novel that was made into like a joan crawford movie i actually uttered these words in front of my girlfriend nobody leaves me see <laughs> like it was suddenly 1939 And she didn't even laugh. I mean, she should have laughed, right? No, she didn't laugh. I mean, she actually got it. You know, I guess she liked Joan Crawford too, but, and maybe it was also because she had a boyfriend who had done a little time, see? Her boyfriend was a little bit of a felon, okay? Now, no, it's true. There are little felons and big felons. He was not full-blown mafia, but he was a tiny bit mafia. You know, there were connections and unregistered cars and some accidents. No homicides, mind you. Just things that could make Brooklyn in 1980 more (laughs)
5: livable.
3: You wanna see my gun? Helen said, right out of the blue. This could be just the thing you need. My gun. Now, I'm not saying pull the trigger, but that son of a bitch bastard just might need the scare of his life because nobody dumps my friend, see? (laughs) In her vanity drawer, she pulled out a gun. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I had never been in a room with a gun before. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it was illegal. I'm, I'm sure it was actually fully loaded because she told me that uh, in case of any intruders, I'm ready.
5: <laughs>
3: my heart was honestly in my sinuses at that point. My eyebrows were sweating. I could not believe that I was witnessing this gun. Take it out, it's really pretty, isn't it? It's a girl gun. It was sleek, it was small, and it was pretty. And if it were a prop in a Broadway show, I would have loved it. I would have picked it up, I would have twirled it around, I might have even aimed it, but it was a real, fully loaded gun. I couldn't touch it. She said when her boyfriend first gave it to her, she didn't like the idea But now, she was happy to have it. Because think about it, Julie. Son of Sam. Son of Sam. And guess what? The neighborhood is changing, and you know what? I don't know where these people are from. Like, I hear them, and I don't know what country they're from. I'm scared, and I'm glad to have the gun. And I think that you should have one, too. So, it's a good idea, it's a good idea to have a gun. Take my gun with you over the weekend and see how you like it, because I can always get you one.
5: Because
3: <laughs> that's a good idea, right? So I am just gonna take her gun. No, this was insanity, It's crazy. I said, put it away. But you know what? You have another bottle of wine, and you have another pack of cigarettes. And suddenly, it seems reasonable. (laughs) Because you know what? Promises were made. Promises were made and they were broken. A deposit was put down on an apartment for us and then he took it away. And you know what, when promises are made and they're broken, you know what? (laughs) You kind of deserve to die. (laughs) I took the gun. (laughs) To be honest, I don't remember if I drove back or if I took it on the F train. I think I actually took a cab all the way home. But I took that gun. I do remember that my body was literally overtaken, my body, my soul, my mind, by revenge. Did I mention I'm half Sicilian? (laughs) You know, what happens to a person when their countryside is invaded over the centuries? (laughs) Or if a man dumps you after making a deposit. (laughs) So on a chilly but bright November morning, I waited on a park bench in Brooklyn Not far from here. Wearing a long cashmere camel coat with a pretty girl gun in my right packet. And if memory serves me, I even wore a cream-colored beret. I looked like a movie still. Barbara Stanwyck had nothing on me. And I had a clear view of their apartment lobby. And I ran through all the options, right, in my head. Number one, I figured... If he's alone, I'm going to follow him until I get close enough to stick the gun in his back and I'm going to bring him to an isolated place and I'm going to threaten him until he accedes to my demands which include living with me in a better apartment than I have now and he pays for the rent. All right, number two. He might be with his wife. All right, if he's with his wife... I'm gonna stick the gun in their backs and tell them not to scream, but to keep walking. I'm gonna bring them to the isolated place. Now, I don't know where this isolated place is, but I'm gonna scare them with death threats and then I'm gonna make her listen to all the details of our tawdry romance, including all his promises that he broke and she's gonna be understandably devastated and she's gonna be so angry, she's gonna leave him and spit in both our faces and then he's gonna be free to be with me and get the apartment and pay for the rent. Number three, the entire family is together. Okay, if that's the case, I'm still gonna threaten all of them. But I'm gonna allow her and the children to escape and then I'm gonna take him to this
5: isolated place
3: where I'm gonna pistol whip him and possibly shoot him in the leg until he agrees to me and accedes to my demands to get the apartment and pay for the rent. And we're gonna tell people that he was a victim of a carjacking, because carjackings were very popular in 1980. (laughs) Or number four, I shoot him, and I face the consequences. The worst, being on the cover of the New York Post in a very bad photo, (laughs) but with a lovely beret. Loser actress loses mind! (laughs) All these options were buzzing around in my mind over and over, and I looked for places, you know, to run, exits, I looked for cops. I looked at all the passers-by who were just going about their business on this cold morning, and I had this strange buzzing sound whirling in my head, and oh my God! Suddenly, out of nowhere, she emerged. The wife, the wife! The wife and the kids. Oh, my God. She's holding their hands, and they all look so happy, and they're wearing these colorful, like, knit hats and scarves and gloves and cute boots. Oh, my God. They were so cute. And they they were talking, like, a mile a minute, and they seem so happy. And how could they be so happy when I'm so miserable? Their father dumped me. He deserves to die, and I am a gun. I was wrong. And, and you people are laughing and skipping and chatting and... and you're acting as if nothing is wrong! I reached into my right pocket, and I felt for the gun. And my stomach dropped like a roller coaster. I was so sick. I was so physically ill. What the
5: fuck? Who the fuck am I?
3: My clarity came with that same strange buzzing sound that was whirling in my head earlier. I was numb, but saved. I don't remember it, but I, I got up and I somehow made my way home and I returned my friend's gun and we never spoke about it again. You know, it's so easy how insanity can come you know, creeping into your mind like like a, like a cat burglar on a summer night. I went into therapy and I left Brooklyn. I became an actress who never needed a real gun because we have props! <laughs> the only line crossed was the F train line platform to Manhattan, which carried me to safety across the East River. Thank you.
5: Austin!
2: Uh, you know, a lot of people will uh, take pictures during the show and then tweet them out, and whenever that happens, if someone's taken a picture of me during the course of the show and I'm backstage and see it tweeted out, I think to myself, what the fuck am I wearing tonight? <laughs> Um, It really is problematic. The the New York Magazine wrote, Kevin Allison got the queer, but not the eye. But we had another bit of interesting internet activity happen while we were backstage. We got a very special email from a fan Let me ask, are Nate and Kirk Mueller here tonight? Nate and Kirk Mueller? Hello? Holy shit! They might not be here. Are you here, Nate and Kirk Mueller? They're here, they're here. Okay, well, your mom says... (laughs) She says, happy birthday to both of you. Uh, I think, apparently, Nate and Kirk have never even heard Risk. (laughs) They just have a a mom who loves the show. (laughs) Uh, Also, she said, Kevin, you are too precious for words, and you have a catchy face. So, the wardrobe could use work, but I have a catchy face. Our next storyteller is a friend going way back. He's done so many wonderful things. He is currently the head writer of the freaking Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. I think of him as the intern for the state (laughs) at MTV, uh, whatever, 25 years ago. Also, a favorite of mine, uh, the work he did in Wet Hot American Summer. Please welcome to the stage the wonderful Ad Miles.
7: Thanks, everybody. Um, I'm uh, nervous because I, I think this story might get me killed. Um, I'm really serious about that. Okay, so um, I, I moved to New York City in 1992. Uh, My friend Zach, Uh, we were college friends from North Carolina State University, and uh, when I got to New York City, I had $700 and a communications degree from North Carolina State University, and uh, that's enough, right, to make it in New York City? (laughs) What else do you need? And I don't know where I got this metric, but I'd heard someone say along the line that if you can make it in New York City for three years... That means the city didn't beat you, and then you can move on and do whatever you want. But you had to go home with your tail between your legs. So I was like, I gotta make it three years. And Zach felt the same way. We had to make it three years in New York to show that the city couldn't beat us. And so what we did, our plan started with, we got super drunk for two years. I mean, it's really... I don't know how I stretched the $700 over 24 months, but somehow... I mean, I had a lot of odd jobs along the way. I don't remember any of them except a couple. I mean, I waited tables. Everybody waits tables. I worked at a video... uh, exercise video company called Buns of Steel. I made exercise videos so that you could have a metallic butt. Um, There's abs of steel as well. Uh, All sorts of body parts of steel... Um, and I landed, my last uh, temp job that I had was I was working at a uh, non-profit publishing company as a temp. And one thing they did not print was money. Uh, they, I think they, some, they paid me less than minimum wage because the temp agency took like a vig or something off the top. And so I was, was broke, really broke. And Zach and I were still roommates and we lived in a studio apartment that had a pretty big closet. It was big enough for a single futon mattress. And uh, that's where Zach slept. And I slept in the, the main room. We were at that kind of place of early 20s when you moved to New York, and you're not really sure one month to the next how it's going to work out. You know, it's like you might have to go home. And we were two years and I was like, I've got to make it three years. We were so broke that I remember, and this is true, I, I remember one time... I found five dollars on the ground in Washington Square Park. And I I was so excited that I called Zach. I said, Zach, are we sitting down? I just found five bucks on the ground in Washington Square Park. It was just sitting there. I picked it up. It's mine now. And his exact words were, I'll meet you at McDonald's, we'll supersize it. And that's exactly what we did. <laughs> we went to McDonald's and we supersized it and god damn it was delicious. So I was working during the day as a temp at this nonprofit publishing house. And Zach had a much better gig. He was working at night as a busboy at a really fancy strip club. And I knew he was doing well because he had to wear a tuxedo to work. So I was like, hey, Zach, can you hook me up? You know, can you get me a job as a busboy at the strip club? And he's like, ah, man, I don't know, man. Those jobs are filled, but I do know that they're looking for a cashier at the strip club. So I was like, well, you know, get me an interview. So I went down and I interviewed uh, for the job as a cashier at a strip club. And the guy that interviewed me, I mean, he's a he's manager of a strip club. And I don't know if it's exactly true, but the way I remember it is he had a switchblade in his hand and he was, like, jabbing it at me a lot while he was asking me questions. He was an intimidating dude. I don't want to say this guy was in the mafia, but he was definitely in the fucking mafia. And so, unfortunately, um, I got the job. It's interesting, being, like, a sort of a buck-toothed 23-year-old nerd from North Carolina with red hair. You hadn't seen that many boobs up into this point in my life. Four, six maybe boobs. And so that first night at the strip club, I like quintupled the amount of boobs by many magnitudes that I'd seen up into this point. (laughs) They were everywhere. it's weird because you get desensitized a little bit. You know, you're just like, after a while, you're just going, oh, yeah, well, they're all over the place. There's a boob, there's a boob, whatever. I've, I've since become resensitized. I, I like <laughs> I'm back into the boobs. Um, but my, my job, my main job as a cashier at the strip club was that when the patrons would come in, they would give the strip club like $200, right? And then they would get back $160 of this fake stripper money. It was like the, the club's way of like skimming a little off the top as soon as you walked in. And it was this very phony-looking, monopoly-looking... I think it might have had, like, Ben Franklin with some giant tits or something on it. It was, like, some dumb-looking thing that... And that's what you would get, and that's what you would tip the waitresses... or not waitresses, the strippers. (laughs) Waitresses of sorts, I suppose, or serving you something. Um, (laughs) But that's what you would tip them with. And when I, you know, tip, it's like they would shove it into their underwear when they liked the dances that they did. And then the strippers would come backstage to me, the cashier, and they would take out these moist wads of, you know, booby bucks. And I would then give them real money that they could go pay rent with. Um, And then the other thing is they would give me back a little bit of that money to tip out the bartenders and the maitre d' and my roommate, the busboy. Um, and I would take all of that money and I would stick it into like a little bank bag and I would slide it into like a slot in the night manager's door and then he would redistribute it the next day. So I was in this cycle where I was working at the nonprofit publishing house in the morning from 9 to 5. I'd come home and I would sleep for about two and a half hours and then I would go to the strip club from 8 till 4 a.m., and then I'd go home and I'd sleep for another 2 or 3 hours and then I'd go to the publishing house from 9 to 5 and I just repeated this over and over for about 8 weeks until I was hallucinating. I mean, I was boobs were everywhere. I think I even asked my boss at the publishing house if his boobs were real. I didn't fuck what was going on. I was completely out of my mind. I had no idea. I like And I was like, what am I doing? I'm like working nonstop, making shitty money just so I can live in this uh, studio apartment with my friend Zach, who's living in the closet. It was a horrible way to live, but i got to make it to three fucking years. (laughs) And so one night, I'm counting out the strip tip money into this bank bag, and it's a lot of money. It adds up, you know? It's like going out all over the place, so it's like like $4,500. I count it all out, and I put it in the tip the, the bank bag and I put the bank bag on the bar stool and I'm just dreaming of going to sleep and I put my jacket on and I clock out and I go home. I leave. I leave the bank bag on the bar stool. It's fine. It's a strip club. Everybody's honest. <laughs> I completely forgot about it. So the next day I'm at the publishing house and my beeper goes off. Um... <laughs> It's 1994. Everybody's got a Bieber. (laughs) And it's the the strip club. And I'm like, that's weird. They'd be calling me during the day. It's probably important. I should call him back. (laughs) So I'm calling back. And uh, the the guy that hired me, is like, Hey, uh, Miles, where's the tip bag? The money. I'm like, I don't know. He's like, well, it wasn't in the slot in my door. So where is it? I'm like, I don't know. I'm at my publishing house job. (laughs) I got to get the dust jackets for Yugoslavian woodworking or whatever it is we're fucking sending out the door. And he's like, well, we don't have it. And I'm like, well, I don't have it. And he goes, well, we don't have it, so it's a fucking problem. And you got to come talk to the boss. And so I had to go down and talk to this guy's boss. I go to his office I mean, the only way to describe him, it's Tony Soprano. He's got like a pinky ring and the slick back hair. And I go into his office and he just looks at me for a second and his first words are like, are you the fucking idiot that lost $4,500 last night? And I'm like, "That's me. (laughs) And he's like, do you know where it is? And I'm like, no. And I'm like, I'm definitely going to end up in the trunk of this guy's car at some point. No fucking question. I'm done. And he stares at me for a little while, and finally he just goes, I don't think you stole the money, but you don't really look like the kind of guy that can put his hands on $4,500 right now. And I was like, no, I can't. He's like, so this is what we're going to do. You're just going to keep working here, and we'll just take your paycheck until you pay back the $4,500. So I'm like, fuck. Fuck an indentured servant to the mob. How did this fucking happen? I have a degree from North Carolina State University. And I go home that night and I've got to go to work. I've got to go back to work at the strip club. And Zach is there and he's in his underwear on my bed which is our couch. <laughs> And he's asking me where his cummerbund is because he's got to put a tuxedo on to go bust tables where the real fucking money is (laughs) remember this is 1994 and so i'm sitting there looking at my life at this point and i just stare at the ground and i just go this is worse than bosnia that was all over the news there was an air war going on in bosnia and it was horrible there was horrible things going on there and it was that's all the news talked about and the only reason they were talking about that is because they hadn't heard about my situation yet which was way fucking worse than bosnia so the next day i go to my first shift at the strip club for free i'll be working for free and I'm like, this is my life now. Uh, I was broke before. I'm like more than broke now. And I go up to the strip club. And as I'm walking up to it, there's crime scene tape all over the front door. I'm like, okay. And I, uh, I start to duck under the crime scene tape to go in because I got a shift, you know. I owe, this, I owe these people money. <laughs> And uh, this other guy comes out, and, you know, he's like, hey, where do you think you're fucking going? And this guy, he looks like a mafia guy, but he's got, like, a gun and a badge. So he's like a cop version of whatever that is. And he goes, where do you think you're fucking going? I am like, uh, I've got a shift. <laughs> he goes, not anymore, you don't. This place has been raided. It's been shut down. Sorry, kid, but you don't got a job no more. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I back away from the strip club and I absorb into the street life of New York City the sidewalk and I feel this enormous sense of relief and I keep walking through New York and for the next 20 years it's been now I made it way past three years, I fucking made it But the entire 20 years, including now, I've been looking over my shoulder because (laughs) I think I owe $4,000 to the mob. (laughs) Thank you.
2: was on one of the first ever episodes of Risk and told a classic story about uh, pooping his pants in Central Park on a date. One of everyone's favorites. And our next storyteller is also someone who was uh, with us at the very beginning at Arlene's Grocery. He is just a hilarious, uh, he's just done so many remarkable things. You can find, he's done stuff on Comedy Central, uh, Bob's Burgers, This American Life. He is, in fact, the man who came up with the love butt. (laughs) Please welcome to the stage, Kurt Braunahler!
6: Hi, everybody. It's me. Big Kevin, no, <laughs> Kevin with glasses, big 80 miles. <laughs> it's two ladies and then three guys who are all just gingers, okay. All right, let's get started. I've only been in one bar fight my entire life, and I know what you guys are thinking like, what, you, only one bar fight? You, the guy who looks like a middle-aged muppet who works at IBM, you? <laughs> And it's true, only one bar fight, and the bar fight happened in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, where I lived for four years in the 90s. I love Baltimore, but when you live in Baltimore, you kind of, like, love it and hate it. Like, it is the place where The Wire was filmed. Like, it's a fucking crazy place. Uh, my favorite thing about Baltimore, at least when I lived there, they had all these um, uh, bus stop signs, bus stop, like, on the, bus, the seats of the bus stations. What are they called? Bus Benches on the benches of the bus stops, uh, had been painted on everyone, Baltimore, the city that reads. Uh, but every single one had been vandalized to read Baltimore, the city that breeds. Uh, but they just put a B in front of reads, so everywhere just said, Baltimore, the city that breads. <laughs> And it was 20% illiteracy late in the city at that point. Um, And now, now the bus stops in uh, Baltimore read, Baltimore, greatest city on earth. (laughs) Which I love a bold lie. I love a fucking bold commit to it. You know, like, what is it going to be next? Like, Baltimore, every citizen has a gold toilet. You know, it's like, make it specific and grand, Baltimore. And so I'm living in Baltimore, I'm in my 20s, and we want to go out for a night on the town. And uh, we want to go dancing. And I want to go to this bar that I love, and the reason I love it is it's my favorite bar in Baltimore because they put ice in the urinals. And ladies, I don't know if you know this, but sometimes bars put ice in the urinals, and I love that. (laughs) because then I can imagine that my penis is a laser and I'm just destroying Eskimo villages from space. So we go to this bar and it's in a part of town called Hamden. And Hamden, In the 80s, Hamden had a big mental institution there. And then Reagan was like, we don't need mental institutions. And so he shut them all down. And then literally the the mental institution in Hamden was just like, open the doors. Like, you're free now. And all of the lunatics, like, walked out of the mental institution and just moved into the neighborhood. Uh, (laughs) But previous to that it had been like a big lesbian like kind of enclave, enclave? (laughs) I'm gonna stick with it, enclave. I'm half French. And so, and so it was just lesbians and lunatics. That was all of Hamden. I remember there used to be this one guy who would stand on the corner in Hamden, yet he would only wear a bathrobe, and in his hand he would have, like, a bunch of different types of brushes, like toothbrushes and hairbrushes and paintbrushes, and he would just scream, Personal Hygiene, $1! <laughs> I love that guy. Like, you would walk up to him and give him a dollar and brush your teeth, like, I don't know! But that was the kind of place Hamden was. And so this bar is in Hamden and we go there, we go there to dance and the DJ there, his name is DJ Jazze, which is a name I would make up for him if I wanted to make fun of him, but he's already chosen it for himself. And he's not a great DJ. And so we were like, this music sucks. We're just gonna get very drunk. And we got very, very drunk. And at 2 a.m. when bars close in Baltimore, everyone gets kicked out of the bar and there's a whole bunch of people on the, on the side of the street. And I'm drunk with my friend and my friend leans over to me and he's like, hey man, I think DJ Jazze just called you a douchebag. <laughs> I don't know why he said that. DJ Jazze was pretty far away. I don't think he could have heard him if he said it. But I was really into spelling things at the time. Don't ask. And my response at that moment at 2 a.m. was just to start scream-spelling douchebag back at him. Just like, D-O-U-C-H-E-B-A-G-D-O-U-S-C-H-E-B-A-G-E. Like, I don't even know how to spell douchebag. But I just continued to do this... And agreed, why I was doing that is confusing. <laughs> but why DJ Jazze chose to take offense is still beyond me. <laughs> but he did, and he started to approach me. And now I'm still scream-spelling douchebag in his face, which I can understand is very upsetting at that point. <laughs> and he, like, gets in my face, and I was like, oh, no, I'm gonna have a fight and had never been in a fight in my life before. And I was like, well, we gotta come up with a plan. So my plan is, I decide this beforehand. I'm like, I'm gonna fly through the air and attack his soft middle parts. (laughs) End of plan. Because in my head, like, that's what a bear does when it attacks, you know? It just wants to flip you over and paw you open so I'll get all your insides out, you know? So that's what I'm gonna do, like, his vulnerable areas, you know, his belly. Uh, And he, like, you know, he's in my face, and he pushes me, and I get a little bit off balance, but I'm like, enact the plan. (laughs) And I, I leap, I leap at him like leave the ground completely, like just jump like this. And if you talk to anybody who's a fighter, they'll tell you first thing, uh, rule of fighting is keep your legs on the ground. <laughs> Gives you place to hit from or run away from. I leave the ground completely, but I'm a little bit off balance cause he's just pushed me. So I don't connect with him at all. I just kind of graze his side and fall to the ground, spraining my wrist and taking the skin off my arm from here to here. And now I'm on the ground and I'm fucking furious. Because this is my first bar fight and all of my injuries are self-sustained. And I... And I remember being on the ground and having the very specific thought of, like, what if my children saw this moment? Like, what if Franz and, and Kafka get into a time machine? I don't have children. That's what I would have named them. Get into a time machine and then go back and visit the most embarrassing moments of their father's life. Like, that's the legit thought I have on the ground. And I hop up. And I'm yelling. And at this point, I think DJ Jazzy is like, oh, no, I have engaged with someone who is not well. <laughs> and I, I, like, grab him, uh, like, in a way that... I think it's like a a headlock, but it's not, because I just have him like around his middle. So his head is this way, and his butt is this way, and I just got like a nice firm hold around his tummy. And then my first thought is that I'm gonna walk him over to this phone booth on the corner. It's about 15 feet away, This is 1999. It's a stand-up phone booth with a door and everything. And, like, I don't know what I was gonna do. I was like, kick some ass and make some calls. Like, I don't know. But I was like, first thought, best thought. Like, gotta commit. At this point, you know, we're just kind of waddling over to the phone booth. And it takes long enough for both of us to be like, what is happening? Why are we fighting? This escalated quickly. And I think what I was going to do is I think I was going to like smash his like head into the, to the, I don't know, the phone booth. But his arms are totally free. So I go to do that and he just kind of pushes the door open and then he kind of gets pushed in and then I'm holding him. So then I'm in, now, now we're in a phone booth together. And so I'm in a phone booth with a man who's named himself DJ Jazzy. I'm bleeding, the lights come on, and we can't, there's no fighting anymore. You can't, can't get any purchase with your, because it's, bo- it's a box. And I don't know whose idea it was first that we we're, we were going to like headbutt each other. Like we both were like, that's the only thing left to do but we both kinda like fucked up the timing of it and ended up just kinda like smashing mouths together. So I'm in a phone booth with DJ Jazze, I'm bleeding, the light's on. It's a far too intimate space for a fight. And uh, it's my first bar fight and I just kissed a dude. And then our friend, like, we bust out of the thing and his friends grab him and my friends grab me. I'm like, yeah, that's right. You get out of here or else next I'm going to suck your fucking dick. (laughs) That's why I don't get into bar fights anymore. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen.
5: Someone to help me. I'm going to need somebody's hand I'm going to need someone to hold me down I'm going to need someone
2: to care I'm going to rise and shake my body i start cooling out my hair
6: I'm going to cover myself with the ashes of you And nobody's gonna give a damn
5: Son of a bitch Give me a drink
2: that is all for this week's episode folks this is nathaniel rateliff and the night sweats behind me now listen on the 10th of february we are in carboro north carolina don't miss it on the 12th of february austin texas on the 13th houston and on february 14th valentine's day we're in dallas texas now On the 24th of February, we are right back at the Bell House in Brooklyn. And you can hear from today's episode what a great time we have there. So come on out, New York. And then on February 25th, we are back at the Nerdist Showroom in Los Angeles. Now, on the 10th of March, we are in Chicago, Illinois. It is always great to be back in Chicago. The theme that night is ecstatic. And the pitch deadline is February 11th, so go to the submissions page at risk-show.com if you want to submit a story to be possibly included in our Chicago show. Then, on March 26th, we're back in Washington, D.C., another one of our very, very favorite places to go. Always incredible audiences in D.C. That is March twenty-six. The theme that night is Powerless. And the pitch deadline is February 27th. So, people in D.C., go to risk-show.com submissions and pitch us. Is there more? Yes, there motherfuck is. <laughs> On April 27th. We are in Vancouver. That'll be our first time ever in Vancouver. The theme is overwhelmed. The pitch deadline is March 30th. On the 28th of April, we are in Seattle, Washington again. The theme is Enraged. The pitch deadline is March 31st. And on the 30th of April, we're in Portland, Oregon. The theme is Despair. And the pitch deadline is April 2nd. Get those pitches in to risk-show.com slash submissions. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
5: Son of a bitch! Give me a drink One more night. said the flower.